Did you get a diploma? It's coming in the mail. Oh. It's in the mail. I'm expecting it to come the first week of June. I did get my robes. Oh, that's cool. Did you take a picture? We still have to do that. We're going to... Can you uh, put weird backgrounds in for her? Graduating on the moon? Can't you manipulate reality? But I'm actually getting my diploma from David Tennant, Emma Thompson, and Maggie Smith looking on in awe. (laughs) And then Maggie Smith gave me a hug. Is this a photo you want to take or a dream that you had? You're so proud of me. Hello and welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. Week 8! We're up to page 198 today. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. And we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi, everyone. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi! So we did a bit of a longer reading this week. Um, we hear more from the residents of Ennett House, and we learn about MIT's radio station, WYYY. And, uh, Mom, you got your wish. There's almost a whole chapter at the Incandenza's dinner table. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. This, the, uh, the, the increased number of pages to read was not difficult to get read, but it, it made my head explode practically. It seemed like <laughs> it seemed like there's just too much to, there's to a understand. Lot going on. There's just too much to understand. But mm-hmm. I was happy to get to see the Incandenza's dinner table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really we only had what, two, three chapters to read? Mm-hmm. But they were really boy, were they they full. were jam packed. I, uh, the farther we go along in the book, the sadder I become about Hal. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the first chapter that we read, or the first section that we read, is this script to Tennis and the Feral Prodigy. Yes. The Mario film. Right, that Hal um, narrates and Mario wrote. So I have a question. This is prodding at me a little bit because I'm not sure why it makes this distinction. Um, and and it it bothers me, and I don't know why it bothers me. Is the title implying that Mario claimed on the entry form to have written the script, but maybe that's not true? I think so. Uh, I think it's... Because it says directed, recorded, edited, and according to the entry form written by Mario in Candenza. Yeah. So I take it as it's kind of up to the reader to decide whether Mario wrote it or not. I choose to believe that Mario did write. Uh, but I think it definitely raises the question of whether or not he did or not. I think based on the voice, it sounds too much like Hal for me Mm. to 100% agree with you that Mario wrote it. Yeah. Um, If he did write it, I think that he had a lot of help from Hal and not necessarily in a condescending or charitable but, but like type a, of way, in but a collaborative a collaboration, way. yeah. 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 That, and and yeah, maybe that's... Hal did write it all, but Mario's name is on it as the writer because maybe it gives, if Hal wrote it and he's narrating it, then it's Hal's story. And I'm not sure, it doesn't say that it's Hal's story. 
We know it is, but that's because we've been introduced to Hal and we know stuff about him. But just anybody watching this film, if it's written by Mario, they might, it might not be as obviously autobiographical as if mm-hmm. it that's true. said it was written by Hal. It gives him a little distance from it. Like, right. which and would kind of make sense for Hal. I don't picture Hal writing something about himself that's as revealing as this mm-hmm. and wanting people to know that it's about him. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he, he says yeah. he, he, can, he hardly knows how he feels about stuff. And so to put it out there as his writing and his narration might be too much for him. Yeah. I don't know. In that way, you, he can kind of pass himself off as a character. Right. Mm-hmm. In Mario's film. I like the idea of it being a collaboration. I mean, whether or not Hal wrote the text in its entirety, uh, certainly Mario would have been involved in the content of the text. I imagine that it started with like a montage that Mario made and then asked Hal to write voiceover for it or something. Yeah, I, I feel like most of it, or at least like the main structure of it and everything, uh, Mario wrote. And Mar- it was kind of Mario's idea and... You know, he said, okay, I want to have this and this and this and this. Uh, But kind of a lot of the flavor and everything is what Hal uh, injected into it. So a lot of the, yeah, like smaller details and things like that. What also just struck me was it seems like just an audio thing. But Mm -hmm. it was a film. So now now I'm looking at it again and thinking, huh, I wonder how Mario, you know, what did it look like? It reminds me again of the the film that I mentioned last week, The Discipline of D.E., that's almost like this kind of twisted educational or instructional film. Uh Um, Or I was thinking about Mario's visually abstract experimental interventions in image. They talk about him pixelating faces and stuff. Um, Reminds me a little of this short film by Heido Steyarl called How Not to Be Seen, a fucking didactic educational .mov file um, (laughs) that's nominally about satellite surveillance technologies, but uses kind of odd uh, digital image interventions to to get that idea across. Um, It struck me as kind of like a Guy Madden film. Hmm. Um, it could be because I've been thinking a lot about my Winnipeg. I've been thinking about Guy Madden, too, in relationship to the way films are discussed here. Um, I think that some of James O's filmography struck me as being a lot like Guy Madden films. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, like, multiple exposure melodramas. Sounds <laughs> like you could use that to describe Guy Madden's oeuvre, generally. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Which is funny because I, I was checking I, when I did my whole breakdown of the uh, the filmography when we did that, mm-hmm. um, I was looking into like filmmakers who were who had extant work that uh, David Foster Wallace might have been aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Guy Madden was not particularly known in the mid 90s. Uh, his oh, his yeah. star started to rise. Uh, in like avant-garde film circles a couple years after this book came out. So it's this, it feels like this really unusual coincidence that this filmmaker came to prominence like right after this book came out. Yeah, so yeah, uh, when was the Saddest Music in the World released? 2003 was when Saddest Music came out. Oh wow, okay. Um, 
he, he makes these movies that look like they were shot in about 1925, uh, they, like really strong vignettes and kind of flickery hand cranked images. And he tells these really kind of magical, realist, bizarre, often really melancholy uh, stories. Uh, the saddest music in the world is one of his he's only made a couple feature length films, and that's one of them. Um, that involves is that Isabella Rossellini? It is, yeah. As a Canadian beer baroness who has who's had a leg amputated and now wears a prosthetic glass leg full of beer, um, and <laughs> and she puts out this call worldwide as she's trying to find the saddest music in the world. Um, Naturally, and and so the story involves all these people traveling from far and wide to come and perform what they think is the saddest possible song for her. Yeah, just the just the description of her that character sounds like it could be in a chapter in this book. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. the glass leg filled with beer. I mean, it just it sounds mm-hmm. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's like just slightly more heightened in in terms of bizarreness than what. Although, I mean. This is, this is some pretty bizarre stuff in this chapter. When we get to the the radio station, we'll have to yeah. talk yeah. about the architecture yes. some. Oh, yeah, yeah but, we uh, are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. God, but, yeah. I, I don't have anything specific to say about Guy Madden, except he's really cool. And Right, um, yeah, same here. Um, and um, uh, My Winnipeg is kind of the other big thing, and that's kind of like a semi-autobiographical uh, piece where... It, yeah, it's maybe kind of a documentary... About yeah, Winnipeg? About Winnipeg and growing up in Winnipeg and his childhood memories, but it's also like recreated and acted by actors and mm-hmm. yeah. Hey, does everybody remember that Howling Condenser remembers the dictionary? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I had forgotten that detail until this chapter. <laughs> Here's how to turn down an extramural date so you won't be asked again. Say something like, mm. I'm terribly sorry, I can't come out to see Eight and a Half revived on a wall-sized Cambridge celluloid festival viewer on Friday, Kimberly or Daphne. But you see, if I jump rope for two hours and then jog backwards through Newton till I puke, they'll let me watch match cartridges and then my mother will read aloud to me from the OED until 2200 lights out and see. So what does you that can be mean? Sh- what did that mean? And see. That's another way of writing etc. Oh. Oh. oh, oh, I didn't, I've never <laughs> seen that ever. Let's see. Holy buckets. Is it because E.T. Et, is et. and? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, this thing is what made me feel so sad about Hal. I feel like his yeah. life is really bleak. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. And that I could really see that as as hellish as his own father's life was with his crazy father uh, pushing mm-hmm. and driving him forward, that it really was, it really drives home how much James O. pushed that onto his own children, or his mm-hmm. own, at least the ones that are, that have athletic abilities. And the line that says, uh, have a father whose own father lost what was there. Have a father yeah. who lived up to his own promise and then found thing after thing to meet and surpass the expectations of his promise in and didn't seem just a whole hell of a lot happier or tighter wrapped than his own failed father, leaving yourself in a kind of feral and flux-ridden state with respect to talent. That whole thing about, so we know Hal has become a really talented 
tennis player, but it's like that talent doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. It's kind of a vicious cycle. Like you play and you practice to avoid thinking about how talent isn't going to make you happy. But then you, because you're practicing so much to avoid thinking about stuff, you actually become better and you become more Mm -hmm. talented. What is feral talent? Yeah, what is it's not a talent? term that I've heard before. I feel like it's it's like unique to like, this. Like, is it like inborn talent, sort of? Like, it, it's Maybe. not that you were I was, taught I was thinking or that, that you were trained or that you. It's like wild talent. It's like yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, I, would, I, I was ahead. thinking that feral prodigy is a pretty apt description of the way people see Hal in that first chapter. Mm. That's really true. Yeah. Having his whatever happened it's to like, him in the, the seizure or the, 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 the communication explosion disaster. Feral meaning yeah, like that's true. Feral. untamed <clears throat> or unpredictable like a, or even, even untamable. And yeah, I kind of just took it as raw, wild, almost violently talented. Also in here, he he refers back to the flashlight by your bed when mm-hmm. when you're having bad dreams, which took me back yeah. to that chapter that also really disturbed me about kids new to boarding school. And right. their mom gave them a flashlight that they could shine in the middle of the night if they woke up. And so then it made me think that that really was Hal's story and not whoever. Yeah, I think this verifies that pretty clearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Vindicated. Really, basically, it says that he has no real friends and he doesn't have dates. And I feel like I feel so annoyed with James O. Uh, Why could he not see all of this in his son when so much of it was an echo of his growing up with Mm -hmm. his own father? Right. Right. The other really bleak thing, the bleak thing was on page 175 when he says... Uh, if you are an adolescent, here is the trick in being neither quite a nerd nor quite a jock. Be no one. It's easier than mm. you think. I underlined that section, too. I, yeah. drew, I drew a sad little face beside it. <laughs> mm-hmm. said, it's like a kid that you'd be really keeping track of for the potential of suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Like he- I totally would. You know, I think it also kind of helps to show a little bit more of Mario's empathy that he's able to see this about Hal. And maybe try to help Hal see it, do you think? By maybe, doing this yeah. project together, yeah. maybe? Yeah, I could see that. Because Mario, in the Incandenza clan, has escaped the crazed uh, sports training because of his disabilities he has. Yeah, he's, he's escaped and, that, so it gives him a different look, maybe, at what happens yeah. with his brothers. Yeah, and even though Mario's making films, I don't really feel like it's James O. forcing Mario to make films. I think it's just something that Mario has naturally gravitated towards. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny because it seems like there's in the Incandenza family there's this enormous pressure to succeed athletically, right? Um, and but then, even though there's also this long history of 
acting and filmmaking, there doesn't seem to be a similar pressure to the Incandenza sons to, to succeed in that way. But you know, yeah. for James O, when he grew up, the pressure was all about the sports. Yeah. And the That's filmmaking true. was a free choice of his. Yeah, and the, the invention of nuclear cold fusion was like so it seems like it was so easy to him. Right. <laughs> it's not right. even really mentioned nothing. as being difficult. Right. Or or right. something that took up any of his time. Like <laughs> I know, but like yeah, he did I, this he had this world changing uh invention or or scientific work, or this breakthrough. World changing. Mm-hmm. It would have cha- it would have changed everything energy wise yeah. Yeah. to be able to have cold fusion right and mm-hmm. and yet it's hardly mentioned it's referenced yeah. you know it refers to it sometimes but it's not it's like that was just something he did on the side right in between, yeah in between tennis and film mm-hmm. another place in that section it said your folks just wanted to make sure you didn't miss anything they got it was like yeah don't miss the bad stuff either. That's an interesting contrast to the previous section of James Sr. talking to James O. And basically training him to get the things that he didn't get. Yeah. So, I don't know, you hear a lot more about (laughs) parents being like, I want you to have everything I didn't have. Right, the failed dreams. Like, you, I want you to be able to live out my failed dreams. Right. So... Does that mean that once you have all the things that your parents got, then you can start thinking about the things that they didn't? But also you have two parents and they both got different things. And That's true. So are they trying to pack two childhoods into your one childhood? Holy Maybe for the Incandenza kids that's the case. I mean I I was just I was thinking about that in in Yeah, Yeah, in terms of, like, the tennis thing and the academics, like, rigorous academics thing. I mean, we learn a little more about that, too, in this chunk of reading that we did about the development of the curriculum at ETA. Yeah. Um, And and the tension between, like, the athletic requirements of of being an ETA student and, and the also rigorous academic requirements. It helped to explain why ETA is such a strange place and Avril's influence on the on the program that was set up, just making it really, really high level academic. And it and it does say it answers the question because I wondered, like, is this typical? Is this at this time, these sports uh, academy kind of boarding schools, was it typical that they would also be, you know, really academically challenging? But it's clear that it's not. It is a weird place, even in this strange time that these people are living. They have so many classes and so much to do. They have class six days a week, right? They don't have classes on Sunday, but they have they have three practice sessions on Sunday, but they don't have classes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, it kind of helped me see how really desperately bleak Hal's life probably is, because not only do you have the grueling regimen of training your body to play this sport and to become really good at it? But at the same time, your downtimes from your tennis practices and drills are filled with this really rigorous academic load 
that's going on yeah. too. It's like it's it's yeah. you're getting. It sounds crushing to me. It also talks about uh, classical education and oh, how uh, yeah. there are, classical education has several parts. One of them is classical oratory, and that mm-hmm. it Enfield that has that piece of the classical education curriculum has translated to history and studio courses in various types of entertainment. Right, mm-hmm. because uh, James O feels very strongly that stu- students hoping to prepare for careers as professional athletes are by intention training also to be entertainers, albeit yeah. of a deep and special sort. Yeah, and that and was so something that James O kind of on thought. The six yeah. terms, mm-hmm. six terms of entertainment courses. Mm-hmm. This also mentions Disney Leith. Soma Richardson, Levy O'Byrne, Chawaf, right. and uh, Mrs. Prickett and Mr. Oglevy as being endowed for perpetuity because they were longtime collaborators of James O. Mm-hmm. Right. It still makes you wonder about Avril and James O and their marriage mm-hmm. and relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this section also says a- that, like most marriages, Avril and the late James and Candenza's was an evolved product of concordance and compromise. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was his idea, right, to start Enfield Tennis yes. Academy. And it was, yeah. it's a tennis academy. And right. Stitt was involved too. They they were developing this tennis academy. And then here's Avril who's saying, well, you've got your tennis, but that's not what this place is about. We want these students to be challenged academically. And it's like they were running two separate schools. So yeah, uh, last thing I have to say is Baffle Gab. Oh, I was going to mention gab. that too. Where yeah. is that? I, I remember Where, the word. Where did that come up? This is how to hold it, just like this. Forget all the Near Eastern slice backhand grip baffle gap. Yes, Such yes, a great excellent. Word. Mm-hmm. Such a great word. Okay, well, that's all I had. It's a wonderful <laughs> word. Should we uh, take the plunge into this scene of little vignettes of people at the Ennett house? Yes. Is she a, she's a counselor? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and she's she, the executive she director the, of yeah, Ennett House. Direct. The construction of this chapter reminded me a lot of the Big Buddies meetings. Oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, okay. it seems a lot more structured than the Big Buddy meetings chapter was, but yeah, mm-hmm. at least um, structured in that, you know, you, there's like a clear beginning and end and a clear yeah. transition from each one. I don't have a lot of notes on this section. I found this to be, I read this chapter really quickly. It just kind of zipped by. Yeah. Um, In the second little vignette, it references, uh, like, do I have trouble recalling certain intervals in the Kemp and Limbaugh administrations? Yeah. So does that mean that Rush Limbaugh was president? Were they president? The two of them were like president and vice president? Do we know who Kemp is? I'm not familiar with it. Is it Jack Kemp? Let's see. Isn't he a... a senator or a... He was an American politician and professional player in both American football and Canadian football. Oh. He was a member of the Republican Party from New York, ran for vice president in 1996. Oh, with Bob uh, Dole. With Bob Dole. There we go. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I think he was a... People had strong opinions about him. Let's just say that. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. him well enough. There's also another term. It might be in that same... Section somebody refers to formication, the sense of yes. bugs crawling oh, on yeah, you. I yes. look it up. Yeah, I did too. I can't remember if 
this character had a name or not, but I'm calling him the Snake Man. Um, the drug dealer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, who lives with the all the snakes. Snake yeah. It, it's somebody that was there with him, right? That that's job, His job was to go catch rats or mice and feed the snakes. Yeah, Brianna, you were guy. you did some you did some investigation <laughs> into this or some research he within the text up. into this. I up. did. Oh, good. I discovered that we know what the snake man's name is. Ooh, do we? Um, yes. yes, his name is Tommy Ducey, and uh. he lived in a trailer with four other people and a small child. And uh, whose name is Harriet. Harriet whose is name is Harriet. Yes. She was three. This human who is speaking is named Bruce Green. Yes. Okay. Who uh. was in love with Mildred Bonk. Mm. This do you, is do you in a vignette this? found in page 38 and the, 39. Who started out as this popular girl and then went all dark. And, 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 and Bruce and Green he went, to and he learn went how to be a bad her. kid. Yeah. So is, right. is Harriet their child? Or is yes. Okay. yes. In the last paragraph on that section on page 39, we learn about Tommy Ducey, the infamous hair-lipped pot and sundries dealer who kept several large snakes in unclean, uncovered aquaria, which smelled, which Tommy Ducey didn't notice because his upper lip completely covered his nostrils and all he could smell was lip. Yeah. Right, right. You are correct. He does keep coming up, but not yes. always by name. Yeah, this is the same dealer that the intermediary was going to get pot from for Erdetti. Yes. Right, yeah. Yes. I, who can't keep any time straight in this book, would like to point out that the date for or these uh, little vignettes from Ennett House are the same day that Pemulus got the DMZ. Mm. Went oh. into the city and got the DMZ. That Just seems so important. You know. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. So we get some continuation of this Bruce Green, Mildred Bonk story and, mm-hmm. and discover that it has a not so happy ending. Let me just say as a preschool teacher, this is the kid that you have to call social services about mm-hmm. if she ever shows up at preschool because she, she smells like she lives in a trailer filled with dirty snake cages mm-hmm. and her parents seem only marginally functional. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But so they eventually wind up at a homeless shelter. Do we know that though? She left. We know that. Oh yeah. Well, I guess. yeah. We left so they they went. wind up at a shelter oh, and then and she went. and then she and Harriet left and left right. him there. Oh okay. And he hasn't shelter. seen her since. Okay. And 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 then he wound up at Ennett House. There's later another reference to Clinette too. Yes. Somebody talks yeah. about someone. Yeah, someone who knows Clinette. Clinette was the narrator of that chapter. Is that right? Um, I think. Yeah. She. Well, I don't know. If she I've was got, the narrator, but what's the unfortunate girl? Her name started with a W. Yes. Wardine. 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 Yes. So, so it's possible that was, this is Wardine who's talking here. That's the possible. same chapter as the chapter that we meet Bruce Green and Mildred Bonk for the first right. time. Oh, interesting. One of the more vividly described incidents in this chapter is a fork stabbing yes. at the table. Oh, yes. Um, yes. The it stabber, who, who, is, who is an attorney, I believe, says, I sort of poked him with my fork, sort of. I could see how maybe somebody could have thought I sort of stabbed him. I offered to get the fork out, though. Let me just say I'm ready to make amends at like any time. <laughs> right. 
And then we hear the other side of the story from the stabby. Right. Was that person also willing to make, were they both willing to make amends? So the stabby says, I know part of this process is learning to live in a community, the give and take to let go of personality issues, turn them over, etc. But is it not also supposed to be, and here I quote the handbook, a safe and nurturing environment? (laughs) I have seldom felt less nurtured than I did impaled on that table, I have to say. They say they're being bashed, and they use the fr- a phrase that I really like. They say this was unabashed bashing at its most fascist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun to say. That person uh, did say yes, maybe a little guilty, because he was tapping on the table, remember? It was, yeah, he was excuse doing me for occupying really, space. It, but he was being, it, it was described as irritating, like obsessive tapping that just wouldn't stop. She so magnanimously says she'll apologize if I will. Right. These are new people. Uh, Pat Montesian is a new person who uh, we... The counselor? Yeah, we get a little more from her perspective later. Yeah. I thought Um, when I read this chunk, I thought she has her hands full. I also wondered the format. Apparently it's one-on-one sessions she's had with them. I imagine so, true? yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think wanted so. It, when I first started reading, I wanted it to be some kind of group session, but clearly <laughs> not, because hmm. although some of them are only like one line. Yeah, I mean, some of them sound like people just like leaning Stopping into her office. In, yeah. And, yeah. For, and, and first, just let me say one thing. That sounds like a phone conversation by Oren. <laughs> first, just let me say one thing and then hang up. Yeah. We definitely need to get on to Madam Psychosis. Let's talk about Madam yeah. Psychosis. I'm fascinated by <laughs> Madam Psychosis. Mm-hmm. I was totally confused by her. I really was starting to think that Avril was Madam Psychosis with her ties to oh. MIT. And yeah. we don't know anything about uh, Avril's physical self. Right. I don't right. think so. Not sure, but I felt like it was probably Avril. Mm. Yeah. And there's a reference somewhere about when they describe the place where the recording studio is in the student union, and it makes a reference to the old student union that was yes. guttered during the grammar riots. Yes. And I thought that was another connection to her. Uh, yeah, so surely Avril was involved in those one riots. even remotely constant theme, it's film and film cartridges, including yes. w- the work of James O. So I kept thinking that this could very well be Avril. Who was ma- yes. and, and it also mentions something about Mario. Uh, when he listens to her voice, he has some kind of a half memory from his early childhood, or something. Something stirs in him a familiarity. Uh, hmm. I thought the whole thing was hinting rather strongly that it's Avril. But then we have Mario listening to the broadcast at, during family dinner night. And yeah, well, there, it, so. it does also describe Madame Psychosis's voice as sounding like someone who has either worked very hard to lose a Southern accent or to pick one up, <laughs> which right. doesn't sound like it would describe the way except, Avril would speak. I think it makes it sound like somebody who's trying to disguise their voice, who doesn't want their mm. identity known, and perhaps she's trying to sound Southern. Vinny, you mentioned that there's a Madame Psychosis listed in the cast list for a number of Incandenza's films. Yeah. Infinite Jest 4 includes oh, okay. a Madame Psychosis 
Low Temperature Civics also has Madame Psychosis in it. Okay. The Desire to Desire has Madame Psychosis in it. Okay, yeah. And also looks like um, Infinite Jest 5 also still has Madame Psychosis mm. in it. Mm-hmm. So a, a frequent collaborator of James O. Yeah, at least a good handful of James O's films. Which doesn't rule out the possibility that it's Avril. Right, yeah, it doesn't. Once I decide, though, that it couldn't be Avril, I'm pretty sure it can't be Avril, then I do think that it is somebody that had close connections with the Incandenza family because of Mario's... It sounds like one of those sort of twilight memories you have from your really early childhood mm-hmm. that that you can't even quite define, but it's more of a sensation, a sound or a... Yeah, for me, I took that because to mean that Mario vaguely remembers her because she was around when uh, James O was making movies. So Mario vaguely remembers uh, being on the set of one of the films that we just talked about. And so he remembers the voice from there. Except that I, I pictured her as somebody even closer Hmm. because most of those, those really, really early foggy memories that we have are connected to some strong emotion, Mm. like some strong, Hmm. Like the very first thing I can, I think that I can remember, I must have been a really, really little, like two or three. And I remember the feel of my dad's uh, wool sport coat that he wore when he taught school. And Mm. I can remember like that, the feeling of that against my cheek when he'd Hmm. carry me, carry me up to bed when I was a little kid. Hmm. And I think that's kind of typical that those sensory memories that you have are tied to some big emotional, there's a big emotional connection. Cause I, so I think it's weird that Mario feels like there's something he recognizes. Her voice seems low depth familiar to Mario, the way certain childhood smells will strike you as familiar and oddly sad. Hmm. And I want to talk specifically about Madame Psychosis and how she relates to the consumption of entertainment. Oh. Um, because ratings stay solid, listeners hang in, the engineer is pretty sure he'd hang in even if he weren't paid to. And at some mm-hmm. point around that same uh, thing, it talks about how, like, even though a lot of times it's just Madame Psychosis reading from, like, pamphlets or something like that or reading depressing literature or whatnot that um, people still feel the need to tune in and that ratings will still stay solid and that even if it's just like an hour or so or dead air they'll all still flock towards madam psychosis she's almost mesmerizing somehow mesmerizing and i also feel like it's sort of this uh reflection of this need to consume that for them, it's not mm. so much about content. It's not so much about what Madame Psychosis is doing. It's just that they're able to consume this entertainment. It's basically not even about what they're doing after consumption. It's just about the consumption of the entertainment itself. Don't it's hyper-local, say, though. I was going to say, mm-hmm. don't they say that it's really hard? She has this big listening audience, but it's really hard to, well, to catch I th- I the broadcast. Big, big is a relative term here. Like compared to other shows on the station, I think it's a big audience. But they talk about how 
the uh, the way this this is a low power FM station right. and you really have to be on or very near campus to receive it right. unless you're right. at the top of a hill like ETA is. Right. Yeah. It, it is really localized, but she has a really faithful following of listeners mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. that small pool of potential listeners. She has a lot of a lot of people that tune in to hear her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. By the way, can I just say that there's a lot of description of how this radio aerial that broadcasts the signal, like, swings around in an ellipse? Yes. Uh, yeah. With a little light on the tip of it. That's not how radio broadcasting works, and it drove me crazy. Well, I mean, Andrew, it's how it if works you, in the future, though. They yes. say, though, that it's <laughs> FM. <laughs> FM is a very specific thing. If you had a radio <laughs> antenna broadcasting FM and it was spinning around in a circle, then half the time people in any given direction wouldn't be hearing the show. I yeah, and I feel like, like that. I, it's like a, it's like those sprinklers that are circular yeah. that circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which. Yeah, either one, uh, David Foster Wallace doesn't understand how radio works, or two, it just goes to show even more uh, how devoted to Madam Psychosis her followers are. Well, that's true. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It adds to the mesmerizing quality of her broadcast, too. The, the, the yes. guy who's, you know, he's up there on the roof watching it go around and around. I, I, and can, around. S- I can see uh, thematically why it's a nice image. It just, it, it's not how it's, it works. It's just wrong. I, it's just technically wrong. Yeah. There's a lot in this book that I get kind of just the slightest. I feel like I have the slightest thought about, but that mm-hmm. I can't quite put it all together. But in this in this section, there's a, there's talk about, so her broadcast, I think it describes on 185, uh, her monologues are structured like nightmares, pre-associative, yes. yet intricately structured, and then describes digital parallelism and cinema of chaotic stasis, yes. characterized by a stubborn and possibly intentionally irritating refusal of different narrative lines to merge into any kind of meaningful confluence. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, that's Madam Psychosis's broadcast and it's David Foster Wallace's writing style. It's honestly, it's yeah. Like, mm-hmm. It's like in a way it all seems separate. It's not linear, which is the way we people in the United States, it's how we expect things to be more linear. Mm-hmm. than some other cultures, but it's not linear. And in some ways, the things that you read seem totally unrelated. And yet there's some strange connection. Sometimes you can't even put your finger on what it is, but that it yeah. all kind of fits. It's like connections are hinted at, but not really spelled out, at least in this part. I'm really curious what her, like, does she consider this a creative practice? Like, does she see herself as an artist? She seems to have very specific tastes. Just taking film as an example. She's not a fan of the French New Wave, but she likes Salvador Dali and Luis Buñuel. She's not a fan of Maya Deren. (laughs) She likes Tarkovsky, who the narrator seems to have not heard of. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is funny because I think Tarkovsky is a much more recognizable name than like Broughton or Hamid. Yeah. This is also the second mention in like three chapters of Fellini's Eight and a Half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh Which Madame Psychosis despises, apparently. And she disappointingly, she's a fan of Tarantino. Yeah. 
Oh, the other thing that made me think that she might that it might be Avril is that it also says that she's also well informed on sports, especially football. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. I hope that we get more from Madame Psychosis and that we learn what I I, I want to know what she thinks she's doing here. I can't imagine it doesn't seem to just be a job for her. She seems very particular about the way this show is constructed. And yet it's um, funny because it says it also says that the show kind of flies itself. She could do it in her sleep behind the mm-hmm. screen. Sometimes she mm-hmm. seems very sad. Also, just sort of in that same section where it's describing that, we also find out that the engineer graduate student that is helping in the studio, right, when she does her, Mm -hmm. did you notice that his research specialty is something involving cold fusion? Yes. And annular fusion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which also made me think of Avril. Um, her oh, The overall tone of this particular broadcast, and apparently it's different all the time, right? You never know mm-hmm. what the focus will be. But I thought Vinny has brought up a lot the treatment of people with disabilities and kind of the, the unkind yeah. Yeah. way that they're treated. And this would be an impossible chapter to read aloud because of all the medical terms for a variety of unfortunate physical difficulties or, I mean, all kinds of things, medical conditions. And and I felt like using the correct name for some kind of affliction should seem more respectful in a way than making fun of, you know, like they have these big old gooey things on their faces, for instance, or, you right. know, instead of, yeah. instead of using descriptions that are clearly unkind and clearly hurtful, somehow having so many of these conditions listed with their medical terms makes it feel like it's just as bad to use the correct terms. Like it's just clinical. It's Mm -hmm. so clinical. Like it's almost too far the other way. It's like clinical and cold. And maybe it's just that it's focusing so much on what's wrong with you. Maybe that's it. It's not even so much the words. It's just the focus on where you're not right. And at some point it, I mean, basically, as you learn about this group that she's, that whose pamphlet she's reading, right. That, that basically it's for everybody. Everybody can come because it's for anyone who perceives that they have any uh, shortcoming in their health or physical being or yes. their yeah. psychological makeup. If there's, if there's anything about yourself that you feel is not beautiful and that people might find unpleasant, if there's anything about you, then you can come, which of course mm-hmm. means anybody, everybody. Mm-hmm. I looked up a lot of the syndromes and conditions just to see what she was talking about and it was a lot of like skin problems and uh, body shape issues and a lot of visible deformities or difficulties i would say would be the theme there's probably other stuff too size of your head or the shape the organization is called the union of the hideously and improbably deformed right Mm -hmm. um, which purports to be some kind of a 12-step support group Right. right. Then it goes on. Was that an end note where it says that 
that the 12 step support groups were really popular and like there had been up to 600 of them uh, yeah. in existence, but now it's down now at this point, it's down to about 200 organizations right, right. that build <laughs> themselves as, as 12 step programs. I do like that. It, it stresses that meetings will be held in rooms without windows. Yeah. <laughs> so no one can see you except everyone yeah. who's there can see you. Right. Who right. is potentially who is everyone, everyone. Who's basically yeah. everyone. There's a thing where she says, Medusas and Odalisks both come find common ground. Yeah. Medusa and the Odalisk was a title of a James O. and Candenza film. Oh. So back oh. when we were talking about the filmography, we looked up what an Odalisk was, and it's essentially a maid servant who worked in the harem of Turkish kings, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Yeah, Mm. I did a little reading on this too, because I remembered uh, being taught specifically about a painting called The Odalisk by uh, Jules Lefebvre, uh, who was a pre-impressionist French painter. Um, I can't really remember why we studied the painting, but he it, it, there's there's this sort of a recurring image in European art, this like orientalist hypersexualized depiction of a chambermaid or a female servant of some kind mm. um, painted as as a reclining nude to the extent that Odalesque now in art often refers to just a nude woman being painted as um like a subject of the male gaze. Ah. Hmm. Um, which does make, <gasps> I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense then in it, like pairing the Medusa and the Odalisk as these like two poles that the Medusa is horrifyingly, like petrifyingly awful to look at. And the Odalisk is like the opposite of that, uh-huh. which is not necessarily a good thing, I think is the point. Right. Like you, you might not want to right. be an Odalisk. Right. But- it does speak to Medusa's agency mm. and how she has the power to turn those who gaze upon her into stone. This is true. Um, whereas the way that you're speaking, odalisks are more often objects. Mm-hmm. Are we moving away from radio show content? Um, perhaps, unless people have other things to say. Because I did research. Oh, oh, Ooh, tell us. Okay, research, okay. yay. I like um, research. I mean, it was just a casual Wikipedia search. <laughs> there is a list of depressing books that Madame Psychosis yes. read as mm-hmm. part of Madame's downer lit hour. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so I was curious to see if these were real books. Mm. And surprise, they are. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so Good Morning Midnight is a 1939 modernist novel by Jean Rhys. Uh, it's experimental in design and deals with a woman's feelings of vulnerability, depression, loneliness, and desperation during the years between the two world wars. The book initially sold poorly because critics thought it was well-written, but too depressing. (laughs) And uh, after its publication, the author spent a decade living in obscurity. Hmm. Hmm. Um, The summary that was provided talks about the main character having difficulty taking care of herself. Uh, She drinks heavily, takes sleeping pills, and obsesses over her appearance. Oh. 
(laughs) (laughs) Which perhaps ties pretty neatly into the themes of addiction that we've been seeing, as well as the uh, union of the... Andrew? Oh, sorry. The Sorry, just a second. I'm on the wrong page. The um, union of the hideously and improbably deformed. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Maggie, a girl of the streets, was an 1893 novella by Stephen Crane. It was actually published under a pseudonym and then republished once uh, Red Badge of Courage was a thing. Anyway... Uh, The story centers on Maggie, who's a young girl from the Bowery who's driven to unfortunate circumstances by poverty and solitude. The work was considered risque by publishers because of its literary realism and strong themes. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Alcoholism is used as a tool to uh, continue a cycle of poverty that the characters can't Uh, break from. mm. So it's a a cycle. Uh Uh-huh addiction and the effects of addiction on the people around you uh giovanni's room was the one that i had heard of Mm -hmm. um and it's a 1956 novel by james baldwin and it focuses on events in the life of an american man living in paris and his feelings and frustrations with his relationships with other men in his life particularly an italian bartender named giovanni whom he meets at a parisian gay bar this mm. one seemed like an outlier in the list, um, but also about relationships and has a like flirtation with a bartender. So alcohol, maybe I don't I've, know. I've read this one. Um, really? Yeah, it's it is indeed depressing, uh, but beautifully mm. written. Um, and it's uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember if there's anything about substance abuse in it. I genuinely can't recall. Um, what about appearance or like vanity? Or... I, I think this. I believe that Giovanni was a pretty vain character, um, and and that um, the narrator. I don't remember if the narrator is ever named, but I believe he's drawn to Giovanni because of his beauty. Okay. Um, and finally, Under the Volcano is a 1947 novel by Malcolm Lowry. And the novel tells the story of Jeffrey Furman, an alcoholic British consul in the small Mexican town of a town name that I cannot pronounce and am not willing to butcher on the Day of the Dead, uh, 1 November 1938. Uh, This one seems particularly interesting to me because it's 12 chapters long and each chapter is an hour of that one day. And each chapter is told from the perspective of a different character. So that in and of itself kind of felt a little David Foster Mm -hmm. Wallace-y. And like a hat tip to, oh, I see you, Malcolm Lowry. I'm doing something similar to you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to my research. Thank you for your research. That was very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about architecture. um, (laughs) Oh, God. So the student union building. Is this a real building? Well, okay. So the Stratton Student Center, is that right? The J.A. Stratton Student Center. That is a real building. So it was Um, an old Neo-Georgian building. I guess maybe I would call it Neo-Georgian. It looks to me like more conventionally late modernist, brutalist architecture. 
I don't know. Because I'm looking at one that looks pretty brutalist. I'm looking at one that looks brutalist in the back, but pretty Neo-Georgian in the front. Oh, maybe that's it. (laughs) Party in the back, Neo-Georgian in the front. So I believe the Mm. implication here is that during the language riots or whatever they were called, that this building was bombed by protesters. And so the new building was built as a replacement. Right. in this school of architecture known as mimetic architecture, uh, which I take to mean like realistic imitation of actual things, mm-hmm. which is uh, interesting because it is actually uh, th- that's a thing in postmodern architecture and uh, particularly vernacular architecture. That's kind of the basis for postmodern architecture. There's a building, uh, JW's handwoven baskets in Dresden, Ohio, is a basket-making company's building that is designed to look like a big picnic basket. Oh, Aww, yeah. Oh, nice. And this is this is a thing for a lot of college campuses, that when they commission a new building, they want it to be in some way, like, architecturally relevant or innovative. Look for the MIT chapel. Oh, Eero Saarinen, who designed... The St. Louis Arch. Okay. Oh. And then there's also uh, the Simmons Hall. They have really some wild, uh, wildly innovative architecture. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think MIT probably prides itself in having unusual architecture, but also like, you know, there's there's a lot of modernist architecture and brutalist architecture has found a home on right. college campuses or it, or it did right. around the time that it was in vogue. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, in a lot of ways, seems to me like David Foster Wallace trying to imagine the next kind of outrageous steps kind of that edgy. institutional architecture might take. Well, and mm-hmm. especially um, at MIT, I think, because I, when you look at the number of buildings that they have that are really like on the cutting edge when they were built, much more so than most college campuses. Mm-hmm. Most college campuses, you might have one building that's kind of architecturally of note, but it looks like MIT has gone all in. So it, it makes you believe that they might have a building that's that mimics yeah. a human brain. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the building itself, head. yeah, based on my best understanding of a few descriptions scattered across this chapter, it's like, for the most part, a very realistic rendition of a human brain. Uh-huh. Um, with eyeballs by the front entrance on either yes. side, yes. just kind of dangling. It's kind of off, yep. off-putting uh, to some people, eyes, right? I believe balloon is exactly yeah. how yeah, they describe it. Eyes. And uh, and at least some amount of skull is present also because there's I don't I think that might have been an endnote or something. They talk about concessions to the mimetic architecture proponents. They, yeah, that they there's mixed like brown pigment into the into the surface of the skulls so that it wouldn't be solid white. Yeah, yeah, so that it would look more bone-like. I also like how kind of almost unusable some of it is because of its architecture. Mm -hmm. Like like that the building codes or the somebody has made them put railings up or or barricades so people don't fall off of places. Yeah, well, yeah, so that's like kind of this veranda that goes around, which is the skull part. They tried to make it look like a skull part because really it was an add-on that they had to do to satisfy the the safety piece of a Mm -hmm. public building. Which reminds me a little of the the addition to the Denver Art Museum, that like sort of crystalline looking thing and Uh how... 
I, I haven't been in there in years, but I remember going in there and seeing all these walls that stuck out at really, that looked like they were designed to make people bump their heads on them. And people did. Yeah. And they had to put up like caution tape and stuff. Yeah. And they had to fill in some of those areas underneath so that people wouldn't walk into them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. But I, do, I mean, I do admire that they've really gone all in on the design and they've mm-hmm. committed to it. Like even inside the radio studio, they talk about the surface of the walls as being like kind of kind of like brain tissue. One of the things that I found weirdest about it mm-hmm. was like, I wouldn't think so much about it if it was like a science building. Mm-hmm. That would make more sense to me. This is the student union. Right. It's got like this this, yeah. the abandoned tennis courts and, and stuff right. in it. People go to hang out and relax and meet their friends, and it's all inside this head. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like the wrong thing to go for mm-hmm. in, a, in a place of recreation and entertainment. But it, seems like, it also gathering. seems like there was some political pressure to pick yeah. this design, which, again, I can't even begin to understand why that political pressure would exist. But And it, and it, is, it is MIT, after all, so perhaps it's a nod to the fact that these... Students here are brainy. They're brainiacs. That's the like, those were the legends that formerly were show that's on before Madame Psychosis Uh is all about Mm -hmm. MIT students mocking their parents for wishing that they were good at sports. Right. Right. I don't have anything else to say about the architecture, except that it's really bizarre. Yeah, really really bizarre bizarre and just really special. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. I'm, yeah. I'm delighted yeah. by it. Could I just also say about Matt, so this is a Madam Psychosis comment that I just came mm-hmm. across again, is with Mario listening. He mm-hmm. says that Madam Psychosis is one of only two people Mario would love to talk to but would be scared to try. Yeah, mm-hmm. who's the other one? Yeah, who is the da, other da, one? Da. Big mystery. I, I, I have, a, I have a, a theory that I just thought of. Ooh. Is it Oren? Oh. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so they're at, it's a very late dinner at the headmaster's right. house mm. with Avril. And Which is typical for them, right? They, yes. Their dinners have always been really late. In fact, when because, they were little kids, they would fall asleep and get carried up to bed. Yes. From the dining yeah, table. Because, because Avril... Um, can only eat really late, yeah. uh, it, it would, which right. is a, a product right. of her Quebecois upbringing. Right, <laughs> right. I'm trying to imagine or like visualize the space of this house. They mentioned that Avril does not like walls. And so it's, it's very like open plan. That's also um, a premonition. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing now. Open plan houses. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. it was a thing then too. It was as far back as Frank Lloyd Wright, this was a yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, which maybe influences my my uh, imagination of what this looks like. I sort of imagine it as being this like modernist big space. That's so funny mm. because that's not how I picture it at all. Even how did you though picture I read it? that it's open, I picture it as dark. Well, I do too. I, I mean, I think it as it's dark and kind of old. Dark and old. I picture it as an old uh, structure that perhaps she's ha- she's had walls knocked out of because they drove her crazy. Oh, so I, I see picture that. it's like an old house, like a you know. But, turn but how old? Like, how I, old is Enfield it's Tennis not that Academy? Old. But that doesn't mean that the house didn't exist before. It's possible that something mm, something possible. was there. Yeah. 
old, dark sure. houses with small windows and yeah. yeah. But mm. but but that's I mean it's also dark my... because it's practically midnight, I think. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, and, I don't and know why because I thought instead that. of Maybe Instead just, of walls, they have plants growing everywhere. That's true. In mm-hmm. enormous proportions. Maybe it's, maybe it's just influenced by the fact that I think their family is so depressingly awful in so many ways. That maybe that's <laughs> why I pictured it as this dark, gloomy environment. Uh, they also mentioned that all the plants have these ultraviolet grow lamps over them that give people tans from sitting at the table. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it's kind of puzzling because it says Avril doesn't like the closed-in spaces, right? She doesn't like mm-hmm. the walls. And yet, she's a big fan of the tunnels, right? All yeah. around Enfield. Yeah. Which, how do you get more mm-hmm. small and closed-in than the, these tunnels? I was these, puzzling over that, too. It doesn't make yeah. sense to me. Yeah, because we also know that uh, Avril is agoraphobic, right? Yes, we, we do, do know that, don't we? We do yeah. know that, or we suspect it or something. It's interesting they talk about uh, Hal, Hal's friends that he brings to the to dinner sometimes, oh, yeah. right? Like she likes she likes Axford, who's the She likes Axford and she likes John Wayne. But mm-hmm. she doesn't like Pemulus. Yeah, and Pemulus struck. and Struck. She is so faultlessly brittlely polite to them that the dining room's tension raises right. hair. Which seems like the closest thing to hatred that right. Avril ever expresses <laughs> is politeness. Right. right. You know, this may be outing myself a lot, but um, my mom used to tell me that you don't have to like someone, you just have to be polite. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. So I've been conditioned to be polite even to people that I absolutely, absolutely hate. Mm-hmm. So it's a corollary to the if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at yep. all. Same song, different verse. So we have Mario lying on his stomach, I think, on the coffee table, listening yeah, to the radio. With his ears super, super close to the radio so that he doesn't bother anyone. Right. Specifically Avril, who can't Avril. stand to hear human voices unless they're coming from a human who's actually there. Right. right. <laughs> okay, Avril. Even though she says, oh, no, go right ahead. You can listen to anything you want anytime. Uh, he, he knows. Mar- Mario does this out of consideration for her. All mm-hmm. children know what their parents really mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't you? <laughs> yes. I mean, it definitely does make you like Mario a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he just seems like the ultimate in compassion and empathy and sensitivity. But it yeah. also seems weird to me. So he's so everyone is still at the table eating and he's not at the table eating. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he doesn't. He's not he eating dinner eat. with them. Or and maybe he that? eats some of the high protein gelatin squares at the end maybe. of the night. But yeah, maybe. I was wondering if he like wolfed it down so that he oh, was that could be. ready well, to so that he could be there to listen to or he his could, show. He could, he could eat before he goes because they're going to dinner at like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. Also That's true. Right. Maybe yeah. he's not so even true. hungry. <laughs> I thought it was kind of touching. It's you know they are such a weird family and they're mm-hmm. and they seem so dysfunctional in almost every way. The more like the more you learn about them, the more you wonder how they. <laughs> how they how they manage at all mm-hmm. and yet it, mm-hmm. it 
it kind of gives you this little glimpse into the the like family ritual. Yeah. And we all do it. I think all of our families have these little things that you just do, like the whole sequence of events when uh, Hal is leaving. Hal has to mm-hmm. go early because he's got to get up for pra- uh, early morning practice. And uh, yeah, he de- they describe it. They, he, he says it. Uh, the whole thing to Hal sometimes gets ritualistic and almost hallucinatory. Right. And they do. They always do the same things. Hal wumps, always wumps his gloves together, smiles up at her, and and you know, and she always says basically the same things. Uh, do not, under any circumstances, have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, which Mario still finds <laughs> clutch your stomach funny every time, week after week, mm-hmm. and. Uh, with their mother, whether they're really, truly close or whether it's just sort of a... I mean, there is a certain closeness implied by these rituals. Whether they're, they have any deep meaning, not really, except mm-hmm. it's kind of their way of telling each other that I don't know if it's as strong as I love you, but uh, I'm connected with you and, you know, we, we're a family. We're a, we're mm-hmm. a team somehow. Come, mm-hmm. Kind of comes across there. Yeah. We learn a little bit about the setup of the headmaster's house. Uh, and both Avril and Tavis's bedrooms are on the second floor, as a matter of fact, right next to each uh-huh. other. The only uh-huh. other room up there is Avril's personal study with a big color Xerox of M. Hamilton as Oz's West Witch on the door. Why the Wicked Witch of the West? Yeah. Yeah, good question. I I don't know. I I mean, I don't have any ideas beyond just that it seems like there's a whole lot of filmic memorabilia just strewn all around the house. So, because there's this that, is there's on like her a study door, though. Yeah. 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 On her, the door to her personal study, it seems. Maybe it's to keep the kids out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did like the images of these tennis kids. That they eat like wild ravenous wolves because they're mm-hmm. so hungry because they 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 burn up so many calories during a day with their practice. Yeah, they eat they like eat a wild dog. Six times a day. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes neglecting utensils altogether. Eats like yeah. a wild dog. Rarely says anything the whole time he's there. And why doesn't she like Pemulus? He, he gives her the howling fantods. Yeah. Is it Maybe cause... because he's from a poor family. Or maybe, or is it because he's got James O, the James O Intendenza scholarship, and he's into the, the stuff that James was into? This scene does make me wonder how James O would have fit into this dynamic. Right, it's hard Mm. to picture him there. It doesn't seem like there's a space. Did he eat dinner with them? Well, he did because he did because. Oh yeah. Don't we have images of how? And his father at the dinner table when Oren would sleep with his eyes open. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which makes more sense now if we know that dinner is happening at like so late, right. 10 or 11 o'clock. Mm. Yeah. Right. I don't know. It just seems like with Avril and CT in the house. Is CT even at dinner tonight? I was unclear on that. He seems almost completely absent in the description, but it seems like he would be there. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no reason he, he, he lives in. Be. They, they live in the house together. Right. 
if he is there, he's completely silent. Yeah. So there again on 192, Mario says, hey, Hal. He keeps saying, hey, Hal, and Hal never responds. Yeah, we don't and know. We never know mm-hmm. what Mario is. Is, is Mario want to draw his attention to something on the Madame Psychosis broadcast? Or, or is he just trying to remind him that it's time to go or something? Should we move on to this summary of units at the uh, the hospital complex? Sure. Yeah. I wondered about that. I had a lot of yeah. questions about. So what's, so, what's so this the hospital, situation? Let me describe this in the way that I'm imagining it. So there's this hill where right. the Enfield Tennis Academy is built. And uh-huh. then at the bottom of this hill is a hospital complex. Right. That includes... A hospital itself, which is abandoned and gutted, but then there's a few of these outbuildings that they describe as being like kind of the size of large houses um, that are still used for a variety of social services type purposes uh, that run down this street. And at the end of the street, then there's this big ravine. And, and there's, there's hard feelings or there were there were legal issues. Uh, yeah, that's one. I, we'll get to that's unit okay. seven, I think. Okay. Um, I do think that's interesting. And, and it seems like probably that's important, maybe from a plot perspective. Right. Um, so here's my wondering. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was really weird and it made me wonder about the state of the world and uh, armed conflict in the world and everything. I, it talked about that it's a veterans hospital and it was functioning as a veterans hospital, but... Like there aren't many veterans. They they say there aren't many veterans, right? There's some old yeah, it sounds like, Vietnam sounds like the US. veterans, and there's some really old Korean War veterans, and and, and so they still it. have these little units. But, but yeah, it sounds like sounds like the U.S. hasn't been involved in a war since Vietnam. Either there haven't been wars, or that they're so catastrophic that there aren't survivors who come home and need uh, medical care. That's true. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. possible. It, it just um, made me wonder, what's up? But yeah, it's interesting that there's no mention of the Gulf War. I mean, I have to wonder whether if this is like an alternate history, if that's that's around the time that the paths of history diverge from our own. Mm. So there's unit number one, which is treating veterans with like PTSD. Unit number two is a methadone clinic. Unit three is unoccupied but getting reconditioned. Unit four is a repository for Alzheimer's patients. Unit five is the shed, which... That's the catatonic. The catatonic catatonic? place, um, which then also we find out where Hal goes in in some of these evenings that... That he hears from. Oh right, um, the, is that an end note? It's a bar. Oh, right? that's the it's end a, note. That's the, the longish yeah, end it's note. The, yeah, the bar, the bar that has the uh, the blind bouncer nights, and your cards are your ID cards are in braille, which yeah. means basically they you can't tell if it's if your right. birth date is faked. right. Yeah. <clears throat> And, the um, unexamined life. The unexamined life. Unexamined yep, life. That's, that's a great bar. name for a bar. It is it great. Is. <laughs> so Hal is sometimes there with his friends, right? But whoever is talking... They're, they're police officers. Somebody, oh, the police officer... Who, who were extras in a James O. film, and that's how they know okay, Hal. Okay, that's how they know mm-hmm. Hal, right. And they like talking to him at the bar, mm-hmm. as opposed to Because they can tell he's interested. They right. right. 
Yeah, so we also get another quick connection between the um, incandenzas, the ETA, and then the... Um, the hospital complex. Yeah, the yes. hospital complex. Yes. Um, there's also a thing here. They talk about this particular patient at the shed who is debilitatingly phobic. Um, mm-hmm. This felt like maybe a, another thematic connection to stuff going on in the book, that she is she's terrified that she might be blind and so she right. never opens her eyes and she's terrified that she might be paralyzed and so she never moves right um, because if she tries to move and she can't then it will confirm that then it confirms that right. fear it's a terror yeah. so terrifying it makes the object of the terror come true somehow yeah right we also see that don gately is at Emmett house Yes. yes he and seems to be working at, there he is working there it says somewhere that he uh he, I don't know if they used the term graduated or he, but he was offered a, he was offered a position. And so he's right. been working yeah. there, which also puts him in really close proximity to ETA. Yeah, it seems like more and more he's like, he's sort of a linchpin character of, of everything. Like he's, he's the connecting, well, I guess there's not a really strong connection yet between him and ETA. We just kind of get that he knows about it. He I calls it a, he calls it the snooty tennis prep school over yeah. here right. Hill. Which it is. Yes. So I'm confused too. Be, uh, once again, my timeline is really foggy in my head. So was Gately at Ennett house? Was he sentenced? Uh, is this after he was arrested? Where does this fall? The I assume it's after. This is after. Yeah, we don't know so for sure was, because we don't know the order of the years, but... So this is, he was there as some part of his right. sentencing, right? Yeah, I would Which imagine. Which to me says... Mm-hmm. Well, or a condition of parole or something. So we don't something. know how, so how long ago would it have been? I mean, to we, me, it sounded like it's not that long ago, right? I mean, this is all, do we assume this is all taking place in the, I don't know, five, six year time frame so far? That's, or not. Yeah, that sounds about than, I mean, right. The subsidized we, we know the names start. of about six years, I think. So to me, I, I wondered about that because I thought, so he's already, uh, he's already graduated from the 12-step program and he's become a staffer there. And to me, it seems like, it sounds like he got off really light for the... Well, I maybe, but I also think like if he, like maybe he pled to a lesser charge like manslaughter and then did a year or two in prison and then went to Ennett House as a condition of parole or something it and did a year or two there. It seems to me like if somebody dies when you're committing a, a burglary, it seems like a bigger deal than that. Yeah. I mean, if he had just gone to the guy's house and they had had an art, something had come up and he'd accidentally killed him, that's one thing, but... Well, you're also assuming he got picked up for that crime. He might have gotten picked up for a robbery. We don't know the situation of his arrest, do we? Yeah, maybe they couldn't prove that it was him. I don't know, although you'd think his fingerprints would be all over everything. But uh, didn't it say that the law enforcement recognized his signature kind of... They they knew right. of him and they knew yeah, his Yeah, because there was a the DA the, that had an axe to the, grind with him. And mm-hmm. the kind of things that were stolen and the way they got into the bill, you know, all of that fit his MO and they pretty much knew it had been him. But I guess we don't know if they actually could make that 
charged stick. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Then unit six is in a house, and unit seven is an abandoned house, uh, unmaintained and deeply slumped at the red roof's middle, as if shrugging its shoulders at some pointless indignity. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, unit seven is the one that there's the uh, lawsuit pending. Yeah, or or completed or it's even. It's completed. Completed. Yeah. It's also where Ennett House residents who want to secretly relapse with substances sneak in and absorb yeah. substances. Yes. And, and apply visine and chlorette and then try to get back across the street without yeah. getting pinched. Yeah, so right. the unpleasantness comes from when ETA was being built. They, like, bulldozed the top of the hill and caused uh, a bunch of rubble to fall down on top of Unit 7. Um, right, making it unusable. And so mm-hmm. as, part of the, as part of the settlement, Enfield Tennis Academy still has to pay full rent every month on what it almost buried. So they don't, right, so they don't have to, they don't have to use the building, they don't have to rent it out to somebody, because it is rented out, it's rented out to ETA. Right. Yeah. They're, all, they're getting their income. And that, I think, brings us to the end of our reading. Yeah, that's it. What does it mean? What does it mean? I think, I think that you're looking too hard for a meaning. I, I, mm-hmm. I mean... Well, maybe maybe I don't mean what does it mean. Maybe I mean where is it going? What is it? Mm. What? Just mm. like a more, more. I mean, what, more stuff is going to happen. What is going <laughs> I don't know. on? Yeah. What is? What so, is? So, some probably some bad things are going to happen, and some things that aren't that bad are going to happen, and the, eventually yeah. the book will be over. Yeah, my guess is right. you know about eight hundred pages <laughs> worth of stuff will be happening. Yeah. You know what I want? I want whatever bad thing is going to happen to Hal to just go ahead and happen, so I don't have to keep dreading it, and I can mm. deal with whatever it is. Yeah. So when is the when is this chapter happening? The the Madam Psychosis and the dinner at I know the Gee. 22nd of October so it's before YDAU it's, yeah. so it's before yes. it's before Hal and uh Pamulus hook up with the DMC it is yes because, okay. yeah because that was so it's before the dread the feeling mm. of dread that we had mm. in our last reading when we yeah. had Hal talking to Pamulus on the phone and we're like mm-hmm. oh Hal and saying yeah I want to commit a crime yeah yeah I do wonder how this book would read if you took all the different chunks and arranged them in chronological order it would be interesting I'm sure people have done that right mm-hmm. yeah probably Put it together in To the order. internet. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone have anything that they want to announce or plug or say to any errant podcast listener who might be listening right now? Uh, let's see. As always, if you're interested, you can check me and my paintings out on Instagram. I'm at CardboardVV. A timeline and a list of characters is located on my website, BriannaKratz.com. Uh, yeah, I've also been linking it in the show notes. So awesome. if, you, if you're looking for a timeline as like a Google Doc spreadsheet that's eminently explorable, that's the Ooh. place to go. I would like to say happy birthday to my mom and Andrew's grandma, yeah. who was happy 100, 100 years old yesterday. Yay. Yeah, happy, happy, anniversary. happy anniversary to you. Yeah. Number 44. So thank you. Oh, Yay. congratulations. Thanks. My website is agingrick.com. You can go there if you want to read my 
teaching philosophy. Yeah. Um, next week, we'll be talking about pages 198 to 223. Our music is by David Nichols. Listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. And remember to squeeze the tennis ball rhythmically month after year until you feel it no more than your heart squeezing blood and your right forearm is three times the size of your left and your arm looks from across a court like a gorilla's arm or a stevedore's arm pasted onto the body of a child. Goodbye. are remote podcasts. They're across the like room. Like emotionally on the... remote? Uh, no, they're not emotionally <laughs> remote, but they are physically remote. And the pod chickens are all doing fine. <laughs> no, it's funny. When you say pod cat, it just sounds like sort of a cute portmanteau. But when you say pod chicken, I imagine a chicken like piloting a small spacecraft right, or something. Right, yeah. Uh, panicking a little bit, but not any more than it usually would. <laughs> <laughs>